Hello, I'm Stuart Chittenden, and this is Lives, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. The theme of this week's show is rural, and joining me in conversation are Caleb Pollard, Gary Clark, and Kyle Argenbright. Joining me on the phone, Caleb Pollard is a 10-year resident of Ord, Nebraska, and a Nebraska native. He is one of the four owner-operators at Scratchtown Brewing Company in Ord, Caleb has been engaged in rural community building efforts since his first two college internships with the Nebraska Community Improvement Program and at the Urban Community Improvement Program. Gary Clark is originally from Washington, D.C. After earning a degree at Dana College in Blair, Nebraska, and a master's at the University of Nebraska-Omaha, Gary's professional life included nearly six years as the Economic Development Director for the small town of West Point, Nebraska, before a recent return to Omaha and the role of manager for the Nebraska Opportunity Fund at the Nebraska Investment Finance Authority. Gary is currently a board member for the Center for Rural Affairs. And joining me on the phone, Kyle Argenbright is the Mayor of Valentine and the Chief Development Officer at Sandhill State Bank. He's, among other roles, a founder of Bolo Beer and helped bring to town a Tom Lehman-designed public golf course and a community college facility. Thank you, gentlemen, for being, uh, being with us today. Thanks, Dirk, Thanks for having us. Why don't we just perhaps uh, go round the line, as it were, and um, I'll start with you, Caleb. You're in Ord, Nebraska. Describe that town a little bit for us. You bet. It, uh, it's about 180 miles uh, as the crow flies uh, west to northwest of Omaha, right at the southern tip of the Nebraska Sandhills, which began about five miles outside of town. And it is a community of uh, 2,000 individuals, and their population for the last 70 years has been pretty steady between 2112 and about 2,700. While at the same time, the county that it resides in, it's, it's the county seat, which is Valley County, uh, has seen a halving of that population since uh, since the last 70 years as well. So there's been um, dynamic change, uh, both good and bad, in our area and in our community, and it has a lot to do with the same stories you'll find in the Great Plains states with rural out-migration uh, as farm consolidations and ranch consolidations happened, because we're right at the line of what I call row crop farming and um, traditional ranch country, which is is where you'll find a lot of what uh, Kyle may have to talk about today. So there's been also some good change as well in the in the last 17 to 18 years. There became a very concerted effort to um, tackle some of these primary driving issues that have led to this population decline and economic decline um, with some with some success. And and it sometimes has to do a lot with uh, understanding how a community like Ord is going to exist in a 21st century farm and ranch economy and also understand um, the opportunities as well as the challenges that kind of exist in that space. And so I've been a part of this community um, for about 10 years and have seen some good and bad and maybe even some ugly uh, in our attempts to tackle a lot of these these 30,000-foot challenges that exist for rural communities, but also very directly get on the ground and address um, some very short-term needs that are necessary to make communities attractive for people to want to live in. Uh, Kyle, let's turn to you. You're in Valentine, Nebraska. Uh, describe that town for us. Uh, Valentine's a town of about 3,000 people. A lot of the same demographics apply to Valentine as do Ord, but uh, we've got a few unique things going on out here. One is we're 
or very remote. Uh, the nearest community is 30 or 45 miles away, and the, uh, the nearest community that's our size or, or larger is two hours in any direction. So we're kind of on a big island out here, separated by the rest of the world from, or by the, the rolling sand hills. You know, Valentine's economy is really driven by the three R's, as I call them. Ranching, uh, which we're in the largest county in the state, and a lot of great cattlemen exist out here. and It's really the founding of, of the area. Uh, the second is recreation. We've got the Niagara River, which is a, a wild and scenic river and uh, sees, you know, near 100,000 people go down the river every year. We also have the, uh, the Prairie Club Golf Course, which is a nice new course. Uh, the new course that Stuart uh, referred to earlier that's a municipal project, and uh, we just have a lot of other agritourism, ecotourism out here in addition to some uh, some cool mom-and-pops and, pops and uh, boutiques. Um, and the third part is the, is the reservation. So we are nine miles south of the state line, and immediately north of us is the Rosebud Indian Reservation, uh, which is a population of, I think, about 15,000 people. It's a growing population, and... You know, they don't have as much commercial activity up there as one would expect. So Valentine benefits from that, that trade pretty significantly. But Valentine's a place I grew up in, uh, chose to come back to after about a decade, in large part uh, to the, the natural amenities that are out here. It's just a really fun place to spend time, particularly when the weather's a little bit warmer. It's a lifestyle that I really appreciate. Thank you, Kyle. Gary, your turn. Uh, and I know that at the moment you're living in Omaha, but you have... Uh, transition through a number of both large and small communities. And mm. so I'm wondering if maybe you might talk a little bit about your experience in West Point. Uh, sure. Uh, West Point is a community of about 3,400 people. And I actually started there in about 2010. Uh, it is a part of Cumming County, Nebraska, which is actually the number one, recently number one in ag production sold uh, in recent uh, rankings, and they are traditionally a cattle community. And so I'd say my experience initially was uh, that of a little bit of uh, shock and surprise by um, how closely and tightly knit this community was. Uh, They had a lot of experiences that uh, became a bit of my own in the short time I was there. And uh, a lot of the unique, hardworking uh, families, uh, very close-knit with uh, the community, uh, very diverse in, as far as the economy there. And it is just uh, in northeast Nebraska, uh, about 20 miles north of Fremont, Nebraska, and uh, about 60 minutes south of South Sioux City, Nebraska. And I, I believe that Cumming County itself is just a rich population that it may be untapped in certain respects, but obviously a tremendous experience for me in my career. You know, maybe I'm just flattering you all because you're my guest, but um, Gary, you were just talking about the richness of people. And, and I, I think that's something that I've discovered for myself, that rural towns really do have a richness of, of people there. But nonetheless, Caleb, you, you mentioned that there was a decline in population and uh, just grabbing some statistics, uh, Nebraska's a state of nearly 2 million people. It's a substantial size, about 200,000 kilometers uh, square kilometers. But 89% of the cities of Nebraska have fewer than 3,000 people. And um, uh, 
more than half of the 93 counties are reporting declining populations. So those figures perhaps uh, maybe sort of defy some of that richness of, of the culture and the people in, in the state. So uh, perhaps, Caleb, I can just start with you and, and, and maybe ask for your reflections on, you know, the decline of rural populations. Well, yeah, I, I think I think there's – I always like to tell the, kind of this, this parallel in that, you know, urban communities are not evaluated by just one community. And it seems like rural in general, and I use the, the air quotes here, team, seems to get lumped in when you have this conversation about the future of rural, that one community or uh, a, a mass of communities really dictates both the future of rural as well as uh, – the the nature of each community in and of, of themselves. And just like, you know, every human being is different, I think every community is distinctly different. And those communities that are going to survive in the, in, in the 21st century, and I may even be as bold to say thrive, are, are I think, predicated on um, some very intentional activities that they do. And we can jump into the, into the weeds of that uh, here in a bit. But I think the population flux is directly a result of um, what I call one of the biggest changes in modern American economic history, and that's the ag, the story of ag. I mean, it, it, that story never gets told, is that, that agriculture now literally is at the cutting edge of some of the most incredible technologies in the entire uh, known universe, uh, and, and, and it will continue to accelerate, I believe, um, continuous consolidation and growth of these large agribusiness farms, because that's what they, the majority of them are. They may still be owned by a family, um, but it's much more um, formally, I don't want to say corporatized, but a much more, uh, I would say, uh, sophisticated business. And the scale of them uh, is, is incredible, whereas, you know, you may have had a number of families living on just a single section back, you know, even 50 to 60 years ago. So I think that, that that element is 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 there, but it takes sophisticated, educated people to be able to work on these farms. A lot of times, uh, I find that when I look at my friends that are ranch hands or they're working a ranch or starting their own herd or they're coming back and, and working on the farm with their parents or what have you, they, they obtain uh, as much education uh, post-secondary as anybody else I've ever met. And I think that that's really something that does that story does not get told is there may be less people here but they're more educated and they're higher trained than they have been ever before and you're also finding i think a reaction to the urbanization even in nebraska the eastern part of the state where there's a there's a significant population of individuals coming out of college or a two-year degree or out of the military and saying they don't want to live in that. And I was one of them, so was my wife. I don't want to speak for Kyle, but I think he remains one of those individuals as well. And so it's like this really strange juxtaposition of uh, the realities of dynamic change, but then also the realities of uh, the opportunities that come with uh, meeting that change. And so for me, it's I, I think it's... It's hard to evaluate one community and say that's the future of rural when there's so much diversity within these communities writ large. I mean, all across Nebraska, you've got immigrant immigrant communities uh, in a number of these places now uh, that are working jobs in those communities, but they're also contributing to uh, a very quickly accelerating richness of that culture simply because a lot of the people that are in these rural communities 
are over the age of 55 or over the age of even 65. I mean, the, the, the aging of a farmer and rancher is a really interesting topic and conversation I think nobody's having right now with regard to the future that it, it will leave for these communities. How does that um, sound to you, Carl, in, uh, with your experience of uh, the Valentine population? Yeah, you know, I think agriculture is, is the underlying theme out here, but Cherry County's Cherry County has really kind of held its own. You know, I think it dropped 14% from 1980 to 2014, and the city of Valentine didn't drop at all. Um, so it's changed a little bit, but it's a lot of what, you know, what big agriculture is doing. When I say big, um, you know, it's not – Ted Turner owns some ground out here. The Mormon Church owns a big chunk. Uh, you see some corporations, you know, big investment corporations buying one here or there. But ranching is a little bit different than farming, and it's so much a labor of love. Uh, rather than just a a real return. So you're seeing ranches by neighboring ranches that don't have any heirs that are coming back or don't have a good succession plan. You're seeing the ranching population age a little bit. For instance, in in Cherry County, I think there was, uh, I think, 36 country schools at one point, and now there's one or two left. We have a cool building in Valentine that used to be the kind of a book depository for the rural schools. And now that we have two instead of 36 and digital digital books instead of paper books, there's really nothing in that building anymore. So it's it's, it's changing a little bit, uh, but it's there's some cool undertones happening here too. You know, rural areas are a place that generally takes a little less capital to get something started, particularly if it's, you know, earned through sweat equity or a little elbow grease. Um, you know, there's our main street's full and we're seeing more and more boutiques and art shops and that kind of stuff pop up. So this quality of life and the creative economy, I think, is starting to come to fruition out here, uh, but it just takes a few more people pushing. Gary, you're one of those people that have uh, moved from big urban areas to small urban areas and, and back and forth. And I'm, I'm curious about your experiences um, being one of those people that perhaps is, um, you know, one, one, of the, one of the sterile numbers that, you know, adds to a town and, and then maybe, you know, is subtracted from a town. Yeah, uh, I think all in all, my experience started out with uh, leaving D.C. and going to a place on my first flight ever to Dana College in Blair. And uh, uh, to be honest, I had tears in my eyes when we were approaching uh, Omaha. And uh, I had never been on a plane before, and I had never seen an approach where there was just farmland. I didn't see the approach that showed downtown Omaha. So first thing I thought of was, where am I going? Um, And that quickly changed within a year's time of being in Blair, Nebraska. I automatically fell in love with the college community, the small college community, which is uh, vibrant in Nebraska, uh, the small schools, private schools. And, uh, you know, from that point on, I had an affinity for that type of community. I had a desire and understanding of that type of community and the opportunities that existed there. Uh, So yeah, I had a journey that took me to um, Newberry, Florida, right outside of Gainesville and as my first job out of grad school. And again, another community with uh, deep roots uh, history. It was probably, again, an experience that I'll forever cherish. And then finally, returning back to uh, Nebraska, uh, a second stint in a professional career 
West Point is actually, as the gentleman mentioned, uh, some some of them mentioned about uh, Cherry County and, and and other places, as Caleb mentioned, having an influx of uh, immigrant population. Well, all you have to do is look at the public schools in these communities. Uh, to be honest, West Point has an increase of almost 50% uh, of a Latino population in their public school. And so that shows a shift in their population, but also the demographics there and the culture becomes uh, more enriched. So I think that's a value that rural communities need to promote. Um, and, and one of the funny things that we talk about is uh, this goal to create business in America itself. And if you look at the numbers, there's almost, what, 700,000 businesses that get startup that you consider a startup. And a large portion of those businesses come from rural places. A lot of people don't know that. Uh, so some of the commonalities I would say that exist that I learned were, number one, the thoughts that urban uh, poverty is the only thing that exists. That's not true. Uh, honestly, there's a commonality there, and maybe uh, the numbers show that in rural places, there's more poverty. And you also have to break down those numbers to see that there's a working poor. You know, so there, but there's also ingenuity. There's also, as Caleb mentioned, bright individuals that are willing to step out and start up a business from scratch. And those things become big and they grow and become international. And so that is the story of uh, rural life and American life is that these things shift by culture, by enriching your experiences with people. And that's what I learned is that it doesn't matter if you're in a rural place or an urban place. It's about the people. It's about the opportunities. And I learned really quickly that rural places provide uh, great opportunities and great experiences as well. You are listening to Lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden. The theme of this week's show is rural. And joining me in conversation are Caleb Pollard, Gary Clark, and Kyle Argenbright. Kyle, you talked about putting in sweat equity, and you also talked about businesses. Caleb, I certainly want to get to you to talk about a brewery. Who wouldn't want to talk about the brewery? Um, but Carl, let me just start with you and just ask you to get that conversation going about how important economic development is in rural communities, uh, what surprises people, for example, Gary's point here about 
how many startups uh, start up in rural communities. And perhaps if there's anything unique about the rural startup community compared to perhaps what is, you know, typically thought of as the, um, you know, the coastal startup community. Yeah, so I think, obviously, economic development is supremely important to the future of these communities. And we take a, an approach in Valentine that is, is really focused on nurturing and growing our own. You know, Chase and Smokestacks, I'd love for a 20-person manufacturing firm to locate to Valentine, but, but that's a little difficult. We're not, we're not entering a fight with the same weapons that some of the large communities have to, to make it attractive for those, those industries to come here. So we focus on helping our existing businesses grow from two employees to four employees, helping a, you know, a retirement age uh, mom-and-pop shop successfully transition to the next generation or to a, you know, a different owner. Uh, we focus on helping people curate these ideas and business plans so that they can start a business with as low as low a risk as possible out here. Um, you know, a lot of the starts that you've seen out here lately are a lot of a lot of trades, um, welders, electricians, construction. You know, now some of these businesses export. Uh, there's some manufacturers here that you know that produce some livestock equipment that's sent as far as Australia and Eastern Europe. Um, a lot of them just serve the, the local economy. Uh, but I think the next, the next wave of startups that, are, that are, we're starting to see out here are kind of ag-based. It's value-added ag, pulling additional equity or cash flow out of an operation that's just, just sitting there because they haven't taken advantage of it. You know, finishing products a little bit further, doing some, um, some special organic crops or or unique crops out here. We're starting to see hops pop up out in western Nebraska. There, there are opportunities, but you know, I think this ag is the driver, and that's what our economy is already set up for in terms of availability of services and expertise. So uh, we're, we're pushing down that road a little bit further, too. I, I agree with Kyle uh, in a number of regards with that, and I think, too, the, the story is very similar with Ord. Ord realized at a very young age in the economic development game that smokestack chasing and, and what they typically call uh, industrial recruitment, which I think writ large, both with urban and uh, rural communities, is an incredibly wasteful way in which to go out and grow an economy. I really think an inward focus on ecosystem development and then putting the tools and the right support structures into place are necessary for growing both rural and urban uh, economic opportunity. And I really feel that, especially in rural, when you don't have railroad or you don't have uh, easy access with airlines, et cetera, uh, the only real way you can get into a lot of these towns is with a two-lane highway. You have to be completely focused on different things, like, like Kyle said, with regard to trades, with regard to value-added ag. Another thing that we found uh, that's an opportunity in our area, in our community, is utilizing now the access to the high-speed Internet to build remote uh, companies that can operate globally but still operate in a means that does not have the overhead that you would find in urban centers. So there's an opportunity there, but, but fundamentally the communities themselves have to have a posture and have to have an attitude that they want to grow. And they can define what that means, in my opinion. I don't think that they're going to go out and, and double the population of the county and get back to a number where we were, say, 70 years ago. But I do think, like both Gary and Kyle mentioned with regard to 
human talent and human capital is using local resources to go out and connect with people because people are ultimately the drivers of economic activity. I'm a firm believer in that rather than, than corporations. And so what I think that rural communities have been creative about and done well is developing local programs and tools, like an ORD, for example, the levying of a sales tax to go out and invest directly into business startup or business transitions within our, our county, and done it probably more successfully than anywhere else in the state, uh, only because we were one of the first communities to do it. And, and, and because I also think inertia begets inertia, and once positivity and positive movement happens, you start to see an acceleration of that. And so the, the word of 2017 is fundamentally different than what it was even 10 years ago when I moved here, uh, including you know looking at the record enrollment numbers in the school district, seeing a big jump in the uh, the 30 to 40 year 40 to 45 year old population group that are starting small companies or businesses in the community and then they're networking and connecting and developing what I think is one of the most important aspects of any economic development program then that is 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 that ecosystem that network of people that can get together and bounce ideas off each other because 10 years ago a lot of guys or gals that were starting businesses out here that were my age were very much on their own very much uh, I think sometimes uh, secluded or alone with what they were what what they were trying to do, and you fast forward ten years and you have a lot more business owners, especially women business owners i would even I would even go out on a limb and say that I think we have a higher per capita rate of women entrepreneurs in rural communities than anywhere else in the country because rural places are so dependent on those sole proprietorships, those LLCs, those S&C corps, those small businesses that are the nuts and bolts of driving the American economy. And so it's really neat to see this ecosystem very organically develop without really any intentionality. But then the, the communities are putting actual capital and resources behind these investments in a way that helps defer risk and in a way that helps buy down that uh, the the debt service that these businesses have to deal with to be successful. And so I think that, like Kyle and Gary have said, there are a number of ways rural communities have gone out and done it well, and I think that they oftentimes can serve as an example to other communities much larger or even inner-city communities that are really trying to develop their uh, economic capital and keep that wealth within that inner city to learn from and and, and to, to grow from. Let's continue that theme then about human talent. I've heard expressions such as dynamic change and uh, the creative economy, uh, enriched cultures. It suggests to me that perhaps uh, one of the key differences between those rural communities that are uh, ossifying and dwindling and those that you're describing in, in Valentine and Ord and sort of West Point and other places, is it right to say that the key difference is the spirit and mindset and the human capital that, that exists in those communities? I absolutely, I think so. And I think that has a lot to do with, you know, I, I really believe in positive psychology, both for like human betterment, but also for community betterment. And what I mean by that is if you get a, what I call a critical mass of, of people pulling in the same direction in rural communities, they can make transformative change that creates inertia. That a lot of other communities that, you know, I mean, taxes in general, taxes are a dirty word in a lot of rural communities when it comes to 
looking at means in which to invest in the future. And there are some communities that have chosen not to invest in their school districts, not to invest in their public safety and health. Their health care facilities have not chose to invest in their libraries, have not chose to invest in their recreation facilities. All the things that people need to be um, happy people, their most basic needs being met, and then there are communities that have done those things, and those communities sometimes are only separated by 5 to 10 to 15 to 20 miles. And it's really remarkable to go to one of them, which I can think of right now 20 miles from Ord, and go to Ord and look at the remarkable difference that, that you say you look at 20 years ago. One community chose to make a, make a change because they realized that the future was very, very gloomy. And the other community chose not to, and to look forward to see where they've come in 20 years is, is really remarkable. Caleb's spot on there. It's, I think, you know, the strategy that it takes to grow a small, small community or rural community doesn't have to be in opposition to, you know, conservative uh, political values by any means. And I'll give an example. We, so we built a new golf course. There was a golf course that the community always had was privately owned, but leased to the members. It'd been that way for 40 years. Uh, and then it, and then it closed. And so we were without golf um, golf access for the community for four or five years. Now, it's not about golfing. It's having a place where you can go with your family. We have golf leagues, and you golf every night with different people. You have those community interactions that really create the, you know, the social fabric of a community. Um, but to build this, we had no expertise in building a golf course, no real expertise in, in running a golf course. And to be honest, there is a little risk of whether this thing cash flows or not. I think it will. Um, we're going to make it cash flow. But that you know, that type of attitude, being willing to take these risks to improve your community situation is what a community has got to get behind. Um, and it takes a little, it takes a little training and it takes a lot of conversation uh, to get there. You know what? I'd also add to the fact you were talking about just the spirit of the human capital out here. The other difference is just the sheer uh, quantity of human capital. In Valentine, I'm confident we could hire 150 to 175 people tomorrow if they came out, had a good work ethic, and were willing to learn the skills necessary to be valuable to their employers. Um, now that creates a, a housing issue, which is a, a separate conversation, but there, there, are the, there is the opportunity out here. Um, it's just, uh, it, you know, it's, it's not quite as mobile, I think, to get from suburban Omaha to Valentine or Ord uh, to move your entire livelihood there unless you've got some sort of connection or uh, or, or just, you know, held down on making it happen. I, I, I agree with both gentlemen. I, I think that human capital is key. Uh, for example, Caleb was a part of the process that brought Cumming County its own economic development program. Uh, just uh, being willing to give some insight and education to a community that was looking for answers after one of their uh, local businesses closed and they lost uh, a large number of jobs and they were looking for solutions. And to have another community on the other end of the state uh, have some human capital, have some knowledge to say, hey, this is what we did to work and to have an, a solution for our community. This was our strategic plan uh, for success in our communities. And you can take it or leave it, but this is the way it worked for us. 
in that and directly, uh, there was an opportunity for economic development program in West Point, Nebraska, and Cumming County. And I had that opportunity indirectly from Caleb being willing to share information. And I, I really think that um, as we talk about what makes a community work in rural places, a lot of that is realizing that that particular community doesn't have all the answers and that there are examples that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You don't have to create some new technology for how your community can thrive and grow or sustain itself. And so regionalism has become a big term uh, for large economic development projects in rural places. But a lot of that regionalism is solely based on human capital, solely based on the fact that uh, I believe in the greater good and I believe in the benefits of our state as a whole, as opposed to just my community of West Point or just my community of Wisner or Valentine or Ord. Uh, but I know we're all better when we all have some benefits and, and opportunities. So I think that experience in itself shows an example of what we can do with human capital, uh, what we can do to promote and market these places. Now, that's another conversation, you know, how Nebraska rural communities will market themselves, not only to people that are already there or leaving to go to college uh, or looking for a place for opportunity, but people that are in urban places that are having a hard time finding the right job, finding the right place in their reality, and finding an opportunity in a rural place, uh, that's kind of one of those things that I'm really wrestling with right now is, is how do we get people to realize that there are opportunities out here, and how do we get those individuals that are already in rural places to market themselves. You're listening to Lives. I'm Stuart Chittenden. The theme of this week's show is rural. And joining me in conversation are Caleb Pollock, Gary Clark, and Kyle Argenbright. Well, Gary, you've thrown down the gauntlet, so I think you'll have to pick it up yourself and maybe offer some suggestions. But let's turn to Caleb and Kyle first and just say, you know, Gary's raised that question. How do we get people to see the opportunity that exists in rural communities? Well, I think I think that uh, an important uh, important component to this again is going back to having you know setting the conversation, setting the table about rural communities in the first place. When my wife and I moved to Ord ten years ago, a number of our friends, a number of our family members uh, thought that we were throwing our uh, careers away, that we were flushing our opportunities down the toilet, that we were limiting our children from having an enriched educational environment 
when we left um, Lincoln and Omaha. And, you know, it's really funny to bring a number of those individuals back to Ord 10 years later, and a number of them are openly discussing moving here, and a number of them have congratulated us on the, the amount of success and the, uh, and the happy and rich lives that we have um, out here uh, without the stress that a lot of people have in fighting traffic and crime and pollution in the city. And I think that it really starts at setting that table, setting that conversation and saying, well, first and foremost, not every rural community is the same. Some better than others, uh, depending on what your, your, you know, your, the, the quality of better is. But also starting to talk about some really tangible things that make people's lives terrible and then showing them that in rural communities you may not make as much money, say, a dollar for dollar for the same job in these communities, but your transportation costs are 30 to 50% down on an average daily basis because you're not commuting two to three hours a day. Or that your child care costs are, you know, entirely half of what they would be if you were in the city. Or that your mortgage was less than what it would be in the city. Or in my instance, the rent I pay for the real estate I built for my brewery is significantly less than what a like-sized brewery would be paying for per square foot in Midtown Omaha. And, and I know that because I've asked my brewery friends what they're paying on their lease payments, and I happen to also own my building, which is, is a nice little element to that, you know, to that building wealth and building economic opportunity for yourself in a rural community. But it, not only does it, does, do we need to have that conversation about you know, what it is we set the table with in terms of opportunity, but also, too, have some frank conversations about rural communities and that they don't, they, they aren't necessarily an alternative for people seeking to leave an urban community to get just another urban experience. We have to be very frank, I think, with what there are, what there is, what there are opportunities for out here without selling a false bill of goods. And I think that that's really important, is that you're not going to be able to get um, the opera and Ord every month. <laughs> you might get it twice a year out here at our small community arts theater, but you also get nearly every evening with your family to sit down and have supper. And there are some quantitative things that you that don't measure up in rural communities because they're qualitative in, in, in nature. And, and, it, and I think you have to be able to, and you can now with technology because we did it when I was economic development director here in Ord, is to go out and find people that want that. And you have to be able to tell it in a compelling way with digital social media that engages younger generations. And what we've also found is when you're engaging those young generations with those stories, and you have to show them. You can't have the Chamber of Commerce president step up and say, or it's a great place to live because X, Y, and Z. You have to turn the camera on the community, and you have to build actual content to then take out to these individuals and say, this is what it's like to live here. This is what's going on. And don't take our word for it. Look at these other people tell these stories, these uniquely Nebraskan stories, these uniquely rural stories that are going on out here. And that's the compelling sell. And that's where people start to say, oh, I see what you meant by that when you, Caleb, wanted to move to Ord 10 years ago and you wanted to start a company and you wanted to coach your kids in basketball and baseball and you wanted to be 
a, you wanted to be a part of your your marriage to your wife, and you also wanted to volunteer for a number of local nonprofits, and you also enjoy hunting and fishing and can jump out of the office or the brewery on a Monday afternoon to do that and not compromise those opportunities because it's just a totally different lifestyle out here. And I think that once you start capturing that those stories and telling them in a compelling fashion and showing people what really is there, the attitudes start changing and quick. My initial strategy was kind of a one-trick pony. I married a girl from Omaha. I always joked she was a flight risk for the first couple of years because she didn't really understand how you know how things worked out here. But now she's recruiting friends and family to try to, to try to move out here because she really appreciates it. She started her own dance studio, um, which they didn't have in Valentine before, and uh, has has really built a, a career that is satisfying and, and rewarding to her. But I think generally, you know, Valentine, our strategy is to build the manufactured amenities that compete with any urban area, to have the YMCAs, to have the golf courses, to have the libraries, to have the community college access, to have a quality of schools and education that is, is absolutely competitive with the, the top end anywhere you look. And then when you combine that with natural amenities that cannot be recreated in, in Omaha or Kansas City or Sioux Falls, um, that's when I think you really have a eureka. Uh, but it, it, it takes a certain kind of person to be open to, to coming out here, particularly if you don't have any family connections. We can just hope that people that come up and come down the river or come golf might just catch the bug and decide to take a flyer someday. I, I think that's uh, those are two great examples. Um, and I know the passion that a lot of these rural community folks have is what attracted me to want to stay in the community that I was in for so long. And I also think that a a little component of it is, as Caleb mentioned, is uh, what are the qualities or benefits in your life that you seek? And do they match up with the rural place that you are looking at or considering? And I think uh, for me, just like Cal mentioned, I actually married a woman from Oakland, Iowa, and uh, she had lived that rural life for quite some time. So it wasn't a huge transition for her to live in West Point. Um, but what I learned was basically what Caleb mentioned is I had the opportunity to coach basketball. I had the opportunity to run in as many fun runs and 5Ks as I wanted to uh, to serve on several different boards, even the hospital board, uh, something that maybe would not have been possible in an urban setting. Uh, I had the opportunity to bring my family from Washington, D.C. to Cumming County uh, to visit and touch and pet their first cow ever, to be on a farm for the first time ever. Uh, Their experiences that they will never forget and their thoughts and concerns and issues about what it would be like to be in a rural place you know, are fractured and destroyed by that. And they become a new person with new values and thoughts about rural places. Uh, Their horizons open up because of that one experience. And so I I don't want to minimalize the potential for people just to visit a place like that. And then you hearken it back to historical perspective. You go to an urban place and you sit down at a coffee shop with an urban uh, person and you talk to them about their family's history, most of them, for the most part, trace back to a rural place. I mean, that is a rich 
connection that everyone in America, for the most part, has, even my family. So I think it's very important that, again, hearkening back to marketing, uh, not that we are in need or, or pushing for all these people to have a mass exodus to rural places, but there are those people out there that would benefit and flourish in rural places that would help to enhance it by being there. And we need to make sure that we're reaching out to those people. But also the young individuals that are going off to college in those rural places. As Caleb mentioned, you have to be willing to share your passion with them and let them know that this is a great opportunity for you to experience a full life uh, that is enriched by just experiencing it in a rural place. So I would have to implore people to continue to to speak on rural opportunities. And it's been a benefit to me and my family. And although we live in an urban place right now, we have been known to bounce around. So (laughs) I think the urban places are great. And I grew up in one in Washington, D.C. But I also think we will always have a a big spot in our heart for uh, rural America and rural Nebraska. Sunlight hurts my eyes And something without warning love Bears heavy on my mind Then I look at you And the world's alright with me Just one look at you And I know it's gonna be I have to say, I've, I've been listening to you, Caleb, listening to you, Kyle, listening to you, Gary, and there is not just an immense amount of experience and um, intelligence and, and talent, but there's a huge amount of passion too. But it makes me wonder if this is fair. If you're portraying uh, uh, this sort of human capital side of, of rural uh, communities, which really doesn't represent the, the the possibilities of many rural communities because you are so, so talented and a vibrant people, are we perhaps getting a, a, a different, should there be a different picture of rural communities where perhaps uh, if they're going to survive, if they're not going to dwindle, they somehow have to conjure people like like you, whether they exist in the community now or can be lured back in some way? I don't think, it, this is Kyle, I don't think every rural community is going to survive. Um, there's got to be a critical mass just to justify, you know, the basic services that communities provide, mm-hmm. talking city, water, sewer, streets. Um, and there's a, you know, there's going to be a pretty clear break. I don't know what that break is now. I think, you know, over the next five to ten years, we'll start to see it. But it's, these communities have to take take a serious look at their future. If, if they want to be there, 
in 20 years, if they want to be a place where their, their children want to come back or if they're, you know, their smartest colleagues or um, most impassioned friends uh, would consider relocating, uh, you've, got to, you've got to do the work to make it happen. In these places, just because of location and next to natural amenities, aren't going to survive indefinitely. Um, just like any, any other business or any other organization, you've got to take those next steps. Yeah, I think Kyle's Kyle's making a very good point there, and and I would share it. I don't I don't think my hometown, where I came from, is nearly as viable as a community like Gord. I think there is some critical mass there. I think it has. When you talk about critical mass, it has more to do with that human capital there. Sometimes rural communities are forever their own worst enemies in terms of uh, what I like to call selling a false bill of goods. Is that a lot of rural communities really want people to move to their community and they want them to be engaged until they don't. And that's when these people, and I put them in quotations, or we call them foreigners in quotations, in a laughable, funny way that's not very funny, is that there are people that don't have a connection to that community or don't look or act like the individuals normally do. And so there's been a real interesting um, uh, tug and pull on what community leaders actually say versus what they actually mean. And I think that it takes some unique uh, or, frankly, headstrong and stubborn individuals that want to move to these communities to insert themselves into the leadership structure without asking permission. Because a lot of times these rural community leaders have perpetuated the same problems that are leading to, to their demise. And so there has to be, I think, sometimes a bit of a shock to the system to say, hey, like if you don't change or if you don't embrace different, whatever that might be, the future is not uh, is not very bright. And I think that there are some troubling trends when you look at attitudes and perceptions that lead to what the future may look like to be a little less bright than um, the flowery future we've been talking about, which I still believe is the future for a lot of places. The other thing that's also equally troubling is a national trend I read uh, recently on the Census website, the Census Bureau's website, is that we have uh, tremendous opportunities in a number of job sectors all over this country, especially in rural communities, oftentimes those jobs being in the trades, where you can make more money and have a more fulfilled career and end up as a business owner in the trades than you can with a four-year degree. And I'm not trying to discourage people from getting a four-year degree, but there's a tremendous amount of opportunity for uh, building wealth as a family uh, by following that career choice. But the big thing is you have to move. And a number of, of really disturbing trends show that since the 2008 housing crisis, the mobility of Americans to find work is at one of its lowest levels in like 50 years or more. And what's troubling to me is that the history of America is of one of migration, is that people move from Oklahoma to California to find opportunity during the Dust Bowl, right? And look at what that did for California. Now you have... You have uh, uh, challenge for a lot of people to find meaningful work, and you're finding, I think, especially for men in the trades or men with high school degrees, a lack of work in a lot of these urban centers like Detroit and other places in, in the Rust Belt that simply have just stayed there because they are tied to their underwater mortgage or they're tied to some other uh, reason why they cannot literally pick up and move. And so I think that that, that is a driving issue that will be interesting to follow uh, in, 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 the, in the future generations to come. 
about a year or so ago, James and Deborah Fallows wrote in the Atlantic magazine about a journey they made across America and exploring its communities. And one of the features of a thriving community that they discerned was that thriving rural communities had breweries. And so here we are with Kyle having founded Bolo Beer and uh, Caleb, you, you've founded Scratchdown Brewing. So what is it? What is it about beer that makes rural communities thrive? Well, I think first and foremost with Nebraska is we have incredible uh, terroir with water that makes really, really good beer. And I think that 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 alone, Nebraska's future is very much going to be dependent on this conversation about water and water rights and access to water, equitable access and the use of water. But with our brewery, uh, water is essential to making great beer. The other flip side of it is, is I think that these rural communities are seeking these third spaces where people can come together, and I always love to say to break bread, because they don't often exist. And breweries are a great place where people are very communal in nature, can come together, break that bread, have a beer, and uh, enjoy the presence of each other. And breweries are also uniquely connected to the ag landscape. And I think that the future is incredibly bright for more hyper-local brewery development in, in, in partnership with producers in the area to develop u- uniquely Nebraskan flavors and tastes right there in those communities that develop a sense of hyper-local that foodies and food critics all over the East and West Coast would, would I think, follow, follow all over themselves to enjoy. I'll, I'll echo the water. I mean, the water here is so pure. It's the same reason that, you know, cattle feeding started in, in Cumming County. It was right at the intersection of where all those inputs were, were perfectly situated. You know, it's the same reason they, they harvest lobster in New England, you know, because the <laughs> product is there. Um, so, so beer is creating, creating that place, um, but also that sense of pride. Beer is an export, and it comes with a brand. It's not like, a, you know, a, a beef, that, a, cow, a cow that you sell through the sale barn that ends up going to a feedlot and then a meat packer. You don't know where it came from. But when you see Bolo beer or Scratchtown beer on tap, you know, people have that, that connection to that place. Um, and it's just that craft economy. It's that creative economy uh, that, you know, that somebody can get into and, and really hone their own skills and, and do something that's, that's world class um, from really anywhere they want. But it just helps when you've got the inputs right out here. Joining me in conversation today has been Caleb Pollard calling in from Ord, Nebraska, and calling in from Valentine, Kyle Argenbright, and here in the studio, Gary Clark. Thank you, gentlemen, very much for calling in. This has been a wonderful discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks for having us. That's the end of this week's show. The sound engineer was Dalimar McTizik. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.